Good morning. Welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. China's credit growth trails estimates. The NPC looks set to announce deposit insurance. And Chiquita merges with Fife's to create the world's largest banana company. In market action, stocks in Europe and the United States do not sell off despite the weak uh, data from China. Are we going to be okay? Well, here's Axel Weber, the chairman of UBS. I think China will do fine. We have Chinese growth somewhat in at 7.7 growth, slightly above consensus in China. You know, the Chinese economy is a market economy and a command and control economy. And whenever we've seen the market economy somewhat slow down or take the impact of less export demand, say, from weather conditions in the U.S., the command economy started kicking in to some degree. We'll see that going forward. They will not allow growth to go down below 7%. So I'm pretty confident. And he's also pretty confident about the United States. We still overweigh U.S. equities. We think that the weather conditions, whilst they showed some patchy data, and it's more difficult to look through the longer-term uh, growth dynamics, the next data is going to show that there's going to be some buyback in terms of growth dynamics from these weak data points. So in terms of delta, the next couple of data points are going to look stronger than the market has anticipated, stronger than the, your average spring. And so we're going to see this more bumpy, more volatile data. But looking through those in a medium-term fashion, we're still very positive on the U.S. The U.S. is going to pull through, grows about 3% this year and next year, in my view, is really penciled in for the U.S. And that makes me very positive about the U.S. economy. So, yay, we're going to be okay. Uh, You can set aside the Bloody Mary and you can just go have some bacon and eggs and sip that coffee and sounds like we're going to be all right. The reason I play that right at the beginning, uh, plenty of new bears have been coming out of hibernation of late. Well-known hedge fund manager Seth Klarman, for instance, yesterday was chiming in with his voice on the bearish agenda. He said on almost any metric, the U.S. equity market is historically quite expensive. Anyway, we'll discuss that a little bit in our featured segments this morning. Uh, The MPF is now a $500 billion industry, according to data that tracks member balances. This morning, we talk about the scheme with Francis Chung, CEO of MPF Ratings. Mr. Chung's company ranks MPF providers in terms of value for money, as well as uh, transparency, governance, and other criteria. And I know most of you love to hate uh, the MPF. We'll we'll get some uh, ideas here about performance and some of the other things that uh, Mr. Chung's company looks at. We'll also be looking at markets with Francis Lun, Chief Executive Officer of Geo Securities, and we'll ask this question Are the banks in Hong Kong ready? for a downturn in the property market? We'll be speaking with Michael Klebanner from Jones Lang LaSalle. Let's crunch these markets for a few minutes here first as we get underway. Uh, Stocks fell slightly on Wall Street, but did come back from their lows. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 33 points to 16,418. The S&P 500 lost a little less than one point to 1877. Boeing was down 1.3% after the disappearance of that Malaysian 777-200 plane. Chiquita Brands, though, rose 11% after agreeing to merge with Fife's, the Irish banana company. Well, China's CSI 300 yesterday dropped to a five-year low after the weak mainland customs data out over the weekend. But let's go back and listen in to a little bit more from Axel Weber. Uh, He's the chairman again at UBS. Here is his longer dissertation on why he thinks China will be okay, even with some of the worries about trusts and the shadow banking industry. Even the issue about the trusts and the shadow banks, they will let some losses impact on 
uh, investors, but they will control the system. Most of these trusts have been sold through the banking system, so ultimately I don't think the banks will be able to walk away from that, and the government is going to deal with the banks in a way that they will basically back the banks, who will ultimately back some of these trusts, the bigger, more systemic ones. So I don't see a problem unfolding in the shadow banking sector in China. I think there will be some losses, there will be a more two-sided risk, not everything is going to be government guaranteed. The exchange rate is not just going to go one way in the future. They'll move to a more market-driven economy and have a better pricing of risk. And I see that as a desirable scenario. I don't think that this market opening and getting prices for risk more aligned with risk-taking is something that we should worry about. They will control it in a way that it's sort of going to happen over time, not really blow up, but at the same time, not remain as much controlling command as it was in the past. Let's take a look at Asian markets. The Nikkei up 61 points at 15,181. So some of the doom and gloom yesterday in Asia has dissipated somewhat. That's a gain of four-tenths of 1%. In Australia, the ASX 200 down seven points. Miners taking a hit on the, China's, on the China data from the weekend. Uh, that uh, ASX 200 number 5423, so down just seven points. And the Kospi in Seoul is higher by three points in 1957. The dollar yen, 103.29. Uh, the euro against the dollar, one. Point three eight seven six. The latest yen read, you know, the renminbi, six point one three one. The Australian dollar, ninety point two three U.S. cents, and the pound, twelve Hong Kong dollars and ninety one cents. I know that's a lot of numbers, but um, that kind of sets you uh, how the markets are performing here in the first few minutes of Asian trade. Well, as I mentioned, a lot of bears have been coming out of late. U.S. stocks too high. China is a bubble happening. Uh, trade numbers uh, taking us down. And I go back to that guy, Seth Klarman. He was warning about bubbles in certain areas, particularly for high-flying Silicon Valley stocks like Netflix and Tesla. He said a skeptic would have to be blind not to see bubbles inflating in junk bond issuance, credit quality, and yields, not to mention the nosebleed stock market valuations of fashionable companies. Companies. And again, that quote on almost any metric, the U.S. equity market, he says, is historically quite expensive. OK, he's just one guy, but he's a pretty widely followed hedge fund manager. Well, Philly Fed President Charles Plosser was asked about bubbles. We should be aware of risks of unintended consequences of our policies. Monetary policy has taken a lot of risk around the world, not just in the United States, but around the world. We've uh, in initiated programs and policies and things that we've never tried before in many cases. And I think we have to be cautious in thinking about the risks that, in fact, our policies are engendering and worry about those and make sure they don't get out of line so that they uh, overtake the path of the economy in, in perhaps a negative way. Money for nothing, 10 minutes after 8 o'clock. Good morning to you. Welcome, Francis Lund, Chief Executive Officer of Geo Securities, to our studios. Okay, I have to warn everybody, we're about ready to go back to the dark side. Uh, <laughs> ne never mind the optimism of Axel Weber uh, and uh, maybe Philly Fed President Charles Plosser, although he was actually arguing, you got to be careful about these unintended consequences. You have to be careful about where this money, all this printed money has, has flowed into. So I go to you. You've been quite bearish of late. Yeah, well, I will continue continue to be bearish because really uh, the problem uh, from China cannot be overemphasized. Uh, uh, last week, uh, uh, Chao Yi uh, became the first uh, corporate bond issuer to default. Actually, 
it, it should have defaulted last year because it had no money to repay the banks. Only the Shanghai government persuaded the banks uh, uh, to extend the repayment period. So actually, from day one, uh, the company has no money to repay. And so, Francis, it's not a good thing that a company defaults, uh-huh. but it's probably good for the system, isn't it? Well, if we see <laughs> that companies that aren't getting it right yeah, go wait, down. Uh, wait until you hear the size of the corporate bond in China is $12.8 trillion U.S. dollars. Is one point no, three it's times? Not, it's not that big. Yes, I, I, I was surprised. I, I, I didn't think it was that big, but I looked up the figures from several sources, and it came out to be that big. It's one point three times the size of the economy. So you think of that, and you know the the corporations in China are really propped up by that. So is the uh, 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 provincial government. So it's everything. So it's the infrastructure, the, the railway and all that. And all this debt bubble will burst one day and, and it's bursting right now. And the second problem is really the property market. Uh, for three years, the property prices refused to come down. And now market forces are finally catching up with property prices. I've been telling you that I see uh, ghost cities everywhere in China. And uh, the oversupply is really finally hitting the buyers and the pro- and the property developers. So you say we're going into uh, something of a of a major correction at the moment, both in China and Hong Kong. Yeah, uh, not in Hong Kong. Uh, 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 Hong no, Kong, I, re- I read uh, I read yesterday. <laughs> I read yesterday that you said that we were we were heading for a correction here. Yeah, yeah, we are heading for a correction, but uh, not maybe not as steep as I originally thought, like four thousand points. But two thousand points is uh, easily uh, 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 can be easily reached. So I think uh, we. we uh, for the short term, we would definitely fall to 22,000 and maybe 21,000. Well, we're at 22,300 right now, yeah. right? So uh-huh. that's, or 22,200. So yeah, not so, much of a stretch from, yeah, yeah, from be, here. But before you were saying under 20,000, you don't think that anymore? Uh, no, I think, I, I, I think the, uh, the emerging markets reacted much better this year than last year because last year, uh, when you look at uh, India and Indonesia, they crashed. So what is actually uh, the mechanism for things to go really wrong in China? You, you think it's these defaults or yeah, is it the yeah, trade that, numbers yeah, falling off a cliff or it, what? It, it is the debt bubble. And, and, and every, when, you start, start, when you start to have corporations defaulting on their debts and, and, the, uh, uh, and the provincial governments defaulting on their debts, and, and, and now everybody is coming to the central government with begging bowls. Could I just ask um, if anybody has a phone on the table there, um, just to explain to our listeners, uh, these these gentlemen, uh, all the three guests are in our Admiralty um, studios there, and uh, we're just getting a little in- interference. Uh, okay, so it, what people would want to know, investors, is, is there a place to hide out in this, or is it better just to get out, or in fact, even to get short? <laughs> well, 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 actually, the, the smart money has been going back to a U.S. Treasury. Uh, at the beginning of the year, you have 10-year U.S. US Treasury at uh, 3%. Uh, 
and now it's two point seven percent. So you so so you see the flood of money going back to to uh, America, and 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 you you see the Dow Jones, the American stock market, uh, on a five year bull run. That's that's exceptionally long. Yeah. Okay. So. To get to news you can use, people listening uh, in this Hong Kong market, would you tell people to go out now and buy REITs and buy utilities and what's available in the market to hunker down a bit? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think, I think. Or would you say actually buy bonds? Well, well, I, I think by uh, U.S. Treasury would be the most defensive uh, action, and 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 I know many investors uh, have been buying uh, China. Uh, corporate bonds because they ha- they have very exceptionally high yield, ten uh, percent or more, and, uh, and and I think it would be wise to sell those off because uh, their prices uh, are, are coming down real fast. Francis, if um, if people side with your kind of thinking uh, mm-hmm. in in China, does a property bust lead to a bank bust, and? How do they mop it up then? Will it be a a, a bailout that always, as usual, falls on the uh, backs of uh, yeah, of taxpayers? Yeah, yeah. I I, I think the situation is really like uh, before two thousand, and uh, everybody's uh, depending on the central government to bail them out because. Uh, Prior to uh, uh, last week, and everybody thought uh, there, uh, there was an implicit understanding that the Chinese government will not let corporate default to happen in the bond market, and that myth has been burst. And and and, and I think for for those uh, 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 money management the assets, I think the bubble will burst too because the amounts are so enormous that the central government. Uh, does not even have the money to bail everybody out. Okay, Francis, uh, thanks very much for joining us here with your commentary on Money for Nothing. Francis Lun is the Chief Executive Officer of Geo Securities. And it brings me to my next guest. Uh, We're joined by Michael Klebanner from Join. uh, He is the Head of Research uh, for Greater China at Jones Lang LaSalle in Hong Kong. Michael, good morning. Uh, Good morning, Brian. So I guess right off the bat, I've got to ask you whether you share uh, the concerns that Francis has uh, before we get into, you know, the impact on Hong Kong banks. Uh, Does it look the same from your perch? Uh, to be honest, no. I, I don't see those risks uh, to be quite as extreme as, as he does. Um, although I, I wouldn't say I'm nearly as optimistic as the chairman of UBS either. Um, there's no question that the debt markets are um, certainly posing a risk to the broader economy in China, but I think the risks are very much controllable in the short term. And I think this default last week was very much orchestrated by the Chinese government for the intended purpose of changing the perception that there's this implicit guarantee. Ultimately, if you're going to price risk correctly and if you're going to have markets determine interest rates, um, there has to be the perception of risk. There has to be an actual risk of default. In the same way that they have tinkered with the up and down movement of the renminbi, it fell again yesterday and it has had a little bit of a weak period of late. And also in terms of uh, interbank rates, they've moved in from time to time to provide more or less liquidity. So it's this uh, back and forth between, as Axel Weber said, the uh, market economy with the command and control economy. But then you've got to get it right. And from your long experience here, will they get it right? Yeah, I mean, so far, um, I I think they're they're feeling their way to some extent. But, you know, you're you're 
talking about what is a really important shift towards market mechanisms. Um, there isn't a history of trading interest rates, and there really isn't a long history of pricing credit risk. So to create uh, those markets um, is not an easy thing to accomplish. Um, so far, I think we've seen really baby steps, and this has all very much, I think, been orchestrated. So, But the uh, big you know, worry is that, you know, just like when the Fed finally got going in 2008, uh, lowering interest rates down to zero, it wasn't enough. It didn't do it. Once the tide really turns, if you get contagion, if everybody says, look, I'm not going to be holding uh, this kind of paper if uh, if the some guy in Beijing and Zhongnan decides, okay, I'll let yep. that one default, I'm out. And once yep. they all start doing that, it may be a tide that's hard yep. to stop. Yeah, there's no question that there is actual risk in the system. And I'm, I'm not someone who uh, will sit here and say that it won't all end in tears. That is a possibility. I just don't think it's the most likely outcome. Um, when we look at the risks in the property sector, um, certainly there is the potential for things to go horribly wrong. But you have to keep in mind, in our view, the government still has many levers at its disposal. Uh, when you look at the supply-demand balance, um, if you wanted to ramp up demand amongst end users, uh, you lower the down payment requirements from 30% to 20% for first-time home buyers, and you're literally adding millions of new potential home buyers to the market. And, you know, that, that's, a, that's a tool that the government has right there at its disposal, and, and that could really help turn, thing, turn things around if things did, uh, you know, suddenly go horribly wrong. One of the other um, issues I'd like to address is how badly exposed Hong Kong banks might be, not only to property here in Hong Kong, but also to, um, you know, this shadow banking sector and the whole loan situation in China. Right. So I think if we look at it from a Hong Kong perspective, um, ultimately, this is one of the, uh, I think, one of the marks in the bull case scenario, uh, very much in their favor. Ultimately, you don't have that much leverage in the Hong Kong residential market at the moment, um, the down payment requirements have been extremely high for quite some time. And because the level of activity in the markets has been so low for the last year, um, actually, the total amount of outstanding mortgage debt has been decreasing in Hong Kong. So actually, the banks here are less and less exposed to the property sector. And in that respect, we think, you know, the Hong Kong homeowners are in a very strong position right now. And I think that's one of the reasons why in the secondary market, uh, housing market in Hong Kong, you haven't seen very much price movement at all, while in the primary market, they've been falling. In a sense, um, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but wouldn't the China banks, in a sense, uh, be a little bit better protected because the authorities have engineered this large spread between the deposit rate and the lending rate? So the banks should be very profitable. They should be buffered. They should be storing up a lot of cash to withstand a problem. Uh, Unfortunately, though, that's back to that comment about it being on the back of depositors, that that spread is a tax on, you know, home uh, just ordinary people. But here in Hong Kong, the spread is pretty thin. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you've seen the spreads move out over the last three uh, three years. Some of that has been uh, Hong Kong Monetary Authority uh, increasing the required reserves for mortgage lending a couple years back. Um, I think in, in China, certainly those spreads were mandated by the government, and it had helped to increase the uh, cash positions for the banks, uh, and that's been helpful. But you know, markets are always forward looking, and in from a China perspective, you have to believe that those spreads will come in as uh, you move towards market-driven lending and uh, deposit rates. 
Okay, so just finally, if I could get your um, overall um, health of the local market uh, sure. going out over the next uh, 12 months, uh, lots of different views. Yep. Um, High level from a China perspective, we think uh, housing prices are most likely to be stable in this year after uh, rising prices uh, in certainly rapidly rising in tier one uh, and modestly rising in tier two. We think they'll be relatively stable in 2014. And the outlook for the Hong Kong market, um, we still see further downside risk in the primary uh, market given the large amount of supply. Um, I think the risks for the Hong Kong market, frankly, are are probably towards um, um, the upside rather than the downside, if the global economy is really healthy this year and the U.S. does continue to do better, that's traditionally been a strong positive for the Hong Kong market. Um, so I think we're still seeing downside risks in Hong Kong, but uh, um, possibly not as bad as we feared earlier in the year. Okay, I know you've got to go. Thanks very much for joining us, Michael. Really appreciate it. Michael Kilbanner from Jones Lang LaSalle. Well, the balance of retirement funds within the mandatory provident fund, the MPF, has swollen to some 500 billion Hong Kong, while average individual account balances tally around 200,000. With such a vast pool of funds under management, fund MPF providers are now facing, you know, a sort of uh, heightened uh, move to try to improve their service. And we're joined now by Francis Chung, CEO of MPF Ratings. Francis, good morning. Good morning. Nice to have you on the program. Pleasure. First, I mean, there's a lot of uh, discomfort in Hong Kong with MPF, um, not least of which is because of the high fees, but also because the performance has been pretty weak. Unfortunately, we had this massive crisis that came up, you know, during the the, the, the belly of the uh, development of the MPF. But um, in terms of looking at uh, performance, uh, what would you uh, say are some of the most important criteria? Yeah, I, th- I think just to carry on the um, the whole bear analogy um, that we've heard this morning. I mean, um, MPF is a bit like a cute, cuddly teddy bear. Um, it, it is there to provide security and comfort. Um, and when the industry is young, that's what it provides. But as you mentioned earlier, it's a $500 billion industry now. Um, member balances on average are at 200000 Hong Kong dollars. So members are now becoming a lot more discerning about what is actual security and comfort. In terms of performance, I mean, that's an interesting one. I think there's a lot of misinformation that um, does the industry a disservice. Um, You know, 100% of the industry is not invested in equities. So naturally, when equity markets go up, the pool of MPF money generally underperforms. Equally, it's somewhat binary. Um, When equity markets fall, not 100% of the money sits in um, the conservative funds or money market funds, and that's where it's often unfairly compared as well. So in the short term... um, you know, MPF is almost in a no-win situation when it comes to performance. From our perspective, performance is a function of time. Um, over time, investing in risk assets at the right price leads to general outperformance. Um, so we look at performance not only from an absolute perspective, not only from a long-term and short-term perspective, but we also look at risk-adjusted performance. The key thing for us from a performance perspective is consistency. And when you look at the top performers here in Hong Kong, are they outperforming the indices that they more or less would be aligned with? Yeah, that's that's actually a very good question. Um, 
Yeah, the industry tech. Because people are paying very high management fees, and they don't even know what the custodian, uh, yes. custodial and yeah. trustee fees are because those are sort of baked into just the performance of the fund, right? Yeah. How, how are they doing? Yeah, I mean, look, that's a very, very good question. And, you know, I, I think if the question's asked in the right way, the general public, I think, would get a lot more mileage out of really understanding what the definition of a high fee versus a low fee is. Um, you know, the better performing funds, we look at an earning to fee basis. So we tend to look at the comparison between how much a fund manager or a scheme provider is generating in returns relative to fees that they take. The the better uh, performing managers tend to have a higher earning to their relative fee. So you mentioned during your introduction that we look at value for money, and that's really what we do look at. Um, you know, the... The, the, the other big problem, uh, you know, we don't have a lot of time. So the other big problem is portability. Yes. Obviously, people are very unhappy with portability. They see the selection of funds that have been chosen by the employer yes. as limiting and also that it kind of often tends to be that company's bankers and that sort of thing. Yeah. Look, that's that's an interesting observation as well. We recently did an independent survey with the Employer Federation of Hong Kong looking at sort of what is motivating sort of switches of money and where money sits. Um, most of the – an overwhelming number of respondents actually um, believe that having a range of life cycle funds, so return relative to risk, was far more important than the broad range of choice. So I think that's an important factor to look at. Equally, I think about 74% of respondents actually sort of made the point that brand was very important as well. So you kind of wonder how do they define brand? Is brand or the quality of brand tied to the relationship that they currently have either with their insurer or their bank? Or is it from an employee or member perspective and the trust they have in some of the, the higher profile sort of street names? There is one possible silver lining to all of this. Uh, because of dollar cost averaging, uh, people who have been in the MPF are probably piling up a lot of cheap units. And if, you know, if and when, it's already happened in the U.S. and to a certain degree in Europe, but if and when they're in Asia and these Asian markets really take off, it will be magnified. A couple of years out, they could be sitting on a whole lot more money than they thought. Uh, absolutely. And I think that's that's a point that is often uh, it, in fact, I go beyond that and say it's always ignored. The average time horizon for an MPF investor is 25 years. The average time to retirement for a Hong Konger is 25 years. You would not put your non-MPF money in a savings account for 25 years. You would take on board risk. With risk, over time, risk gets diversified away. In the short term, you do get volatility. So you're absolutely right. Long term, they'll do well. And, of course, the item in the news is that coming up later this month, uh, on the 18th, um, legislators will be debating uh, what's a very controversial mechanism, uh, you know, offsetting the the uh, employer's portion of contributions to the MPF against uh, severance and long service fees. That yes. doesn't really feature so much into this conversation, but it is another thing that sours the mood about MPF. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, you have to understand where MPF has, has come from, its genesis. It was designed as an employer-sponsored initiative. Um, there is that element of protection. I think if that went, um, the diversity of choice would certainly empower employees and members far better and far more effectively. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's a very interesting uh, topic and love to have you back at some point. Love to be back. I'd like to go through the names even. I uh, hope we didn't scare you off with all that uh, bear trap stuff earlier this morning. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm a natural bear. Francis, thank you very much. Thank you. Francis Pleasure. Chung, the CEO of MPF Ratings. Money for nothing at 830. 
Briefly, here's how the markets are moving along as we stroll, as we walk, as we glance through the, the markets uh, in their first half hour of performances. So, the Nikkei up 90 points, 15,210. Australia just slightly lower to Seoul, a little bit higher. How about the weather today? Well, expecting cloudy skies with some rain patches, cool temperatures in the morning. And uh, looking over the next couple of days, the temperatures will rise gradually. We could even get up to 20 to 22 degrees in the next two or three days. A31, the news with Samantha Butler. Malaysian authorities have decided to search over a much wider area to try to locate an airliner that disappeared less than an hour into its flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. Three days after the aircraft went missing, an international effort involving ships and planes has failed to find any wreckage, causing growing frustration for the families of the 239 people on board. Most of them came from China. The BBC's John Sudworth reports from Beijing. The search area has been widened and now includes the waters on both sides of the Malaysian Peninsula. It's a huge expanse of sea and it shows that the authorities still have no idea of what's happened to the missing plane. They've released some very limited information about the two men who boarded the flight using stolen passports. They are not of Asian appearance. The travel agent who booked their tickets to Amsterdam via Beijing says they did not specifically request flight MH370 but took it because it was the cheapest route to Europe. There's been another flare-up in the territorial dispute between China and the Philippines in the South China Sea. Radio Australia's Shirley Escalante reports from Manila. Philippines defense spokesman Peter